Welcome to episode 58 of The Photo Show with Jackie Battenfield, who is a fantastic motivational speaker and artist. And of course, we'll get into that. But I just want to mention that, um, you know, this is kind of a, a slow time of year for, for things happening because, you know, people want to get away and be with their families. But on January 11th, there'll be a, an opening reception at the Stephen Kasher Gallery uh, for a show called Day by Day 1968. And it's a, basically a a photo a day of important uh, or you know interesting events from 1968 and accompanying that will be a book and that book was designed and produced by SPQR yeah no that's right yeah SPQR uh, produced it. it's not an SPQR book per se but right. they uh, they got involved and packaged and had the book printed and did everything and the the interesting thing about the show and of course the book is that they're all photographs either from uh, news media or like public uh, relations uh, material, so promotions for films and everything like that. And it's literally every day of the year. So, you know, you see January 11th, January 12th, on and on and on. And uh, it's remarkable to see how things, you know, what was going on in 1968, which is obviously an important year, and um, just to see how things changed over over just the course of those 365 days. So that reception is from 6 to 8, January 11th, Stephen Kasher Gallery, 515 West 26th Street. And if you uh, search for Kasher Gallery on Facebook, you can um, say you're going to that event or at least say interested so it bookmarks it for you. So I just came back from having uh, breakfast with uh, two former guests on the show, uh, Jared Thorne, who was in town from Ohio, so nice to see him in person, and Claudio Nolasco, who was in town from Western Massachusetts, and we all met up for uh, some coffee and breakfast. And um, one thing that came up repeatedly in our conversations was, all being teachers, how Fewer and fewer of uh, some of their students are taking pictures anymore or people are, you know, that they're less motivated to, to go out with their cameras and or they're more afraid in some ways of, of making work. And uh, I think it ties in very well with uh, our conversation with Jackie about just, you know, having a life in the arts and, and not being afraid to, you know, jump in, make work, get your work out there and, you uh, and to stay motivated, you know, and to stay, uh, it's the new year coming up, you know, when, depending on when you're listening to this episode, but the new year is always a time to reflect and think about, you know, what's going to come up in the, in the coming year. And, um, yeah, I think, uh, this conversation with Jackie should be inspirational for people thinking about where they are in their own creative output and, and, and more importantly, sharing that with the world. In, in some ways, this is a New Year's resolution episode because... Absolutely. Yeah, yeah this is, you know, what Jackie's message is not that, um, you know, you have to make all your money doing art and, and success is measured by how much money you're making, but that you've figured out a life where you can make art and it doesn't damage your personal life and it doesn't damage your financial life and... You know, it allows you to, to, to live and make art. And it was it was really a, a great message and, and a fantastic conversation. I'm looking forward to hearing it again. I mean, we were, uh, I see Jackie around Columbia and uh, always brings a smile to my face. And <laughs> I was glad that we got to sit down with her and and uh, pull some of these nuggets out. And of course, in, in the episode and right now, I'll plug, if you're looking for a Christmas present for yourself, you yeah. should consider buying... The Artist's Guide, which is uh, Jackie's great book on uh, 
you know, how to survive and prosper as an artist, but not that book. It's the artist guide. So I'm, I'm referencing. Yeah. It's how to make I, a living doing what you love. I can hear you uh, rattling around looking for the book. Yeah. The artist. Yeah, that's right. On my bookshelf. I just looked. Yeah. <laughs> the artist guide, how to make a living doing what you love. Um, and we, we actually talk about uh, the second part of that title and, and how, uh, you know, that was um, a little bit of a compromise with her publisher. And, and again, the message that Jackie doesn't want to send when she's doing her lectures and, and teaching at Columbia is that, it, you know, it is all about the money and, and that is somehow the measure of success. So absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, Kai, uh, have a great holiday break and happy new year. Yeah, you as well. See you in 2018. Yep. And uh, goodbye, everyone. And, and, and everyone else, you know, have a great, happy and safe new year. So we'll talk soon. Brooklyn. How long have you been out there? 10 years, almost 10 years and um, four months exactly. Yeah, you guys, didn't you get a, there were some circumstances where you wound up getting that fabulous uh, apartment, Well, we bought right? it, okay. but um, we did get a little bit of a buyout from a rent-stabilized loft in, Soho, in Tribeca. Right, yeah. So, you know, we used that for a down payment. That's one of the art, artist's dreams, right? I mean, I met It is, that, and we were so lucky. You know that space. We were so lucky to get yeah. that space because it has such good studio for us. Yeah, they have this fabulous place with like a open first floor, and then you go down this nice stairwell, and you have this whole open, like, right. sort of basement level. Right, 1,200 square feet of studio. Oh, yeah. Living the dream. Yeah. Living the dream. <laughs> That's us. I mean, we do have a mortgage until I'm 90 years old, but... Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no problem. <laughs> that's what kids are for. Yeah, well, and that's, uh, you know, people in my family tend to live later than 90, so I may oh. actually see it paid off. Oh, <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> I guess one downside is that you have to live in that part of Williamsburg, which is now so busy. I it mean, was not that way when we moved in. Of yeah. course, you know, when you move into a neighborhood, you, you say, like okay, ho- perfect, just keep <laughs> it as it is. <laughs> that never happens. Yeah, yes. isn't there like a hotel, like almost there's right across? Four now, there's now four hotels hotels within oh, two blocks of yeah us. it's wild so do you yeah. have a car yes we have a car <laughs> what but is that parking's like gotten di- more difficult <laughs> right. and you know i didn't sleep at all saturday night because this food truck decided to park right across the street from my bedroom uh. and run its generator all night oh. <sighs> and that little vibration sure. you just like it gets in your ears forget yeah you can't go to sleep that was and a you, pain you can't call 311 on things i mean like that, yeah or? i mean we're i think i'm gonna have to just go see, start seeing the community board and the local city council representative and get some better rules for the food trucks yeah that's crazy they're all over the streets there because there's so many people that leave the clubs yeah drunk stumbling home and want some uh i mean i can deal with the drunks <laughs> you used to be a drunk stumbling home so I'll go <laughs> i can deal with that or the occasional shout in the night i can sleep through that it's the... i can't yeah so i'm excited to announce that you are your second uh self-identified painter that we've had on the show oh, which really? is kind of nice. yeah, the first yeah. one we we recorded at pen and brush and trisha wright was our guest ah. the painter and she's very sort of 
conceptually photographic ideas in her paintings? Uh, well, I use photographs in my paintings. No, oh. I project photographs that I've shot of trees mm-hmm. um, in all their glory all over New York, and I project them and draw them very carefully, staying completely true mm-hmm. to what the tree does and right. leaves do, which is often quite a mystery. When mm. but it's a great way to slow down looking. Mm-hmm. I was just uh, up doing a bicycle ride yesterday up through uh, the gunks, like up in the parks up there and fall What's foliage. The, the Shawang gunks. Yeah, they call them, it's the, right near Poughkeepsie you go over there. Oh, like yeah, the, right. And, you know, up in the mountains and the trees were, I mean, it was incredible. It was yeah. almost like, uh, there was a couple of scenes where we were riding along where it felt like it was a scene out of a movie or something. It was ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, but second painter, but our first motivational speaker yeah. we've had. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Uh, that's interesting. So for all of those who are listening, prepare to be motivated. Uh, <laughs> and I also like that, I think this is probably self-described, but in the description uh, of your book, which we'll get to, you're described as give, handing out tough love, yeah. which I think is pretty nice. The reason why I even wrote the book, or I think the reason behind a lot of my teaching is the fact that I am a self-employed artist. I have been married to a self-employed artist for now 35 years. We raised two children on self-employment. Wow. We fund everything in our lives through those kind of entrepreneurial skills. And I found that at the time I was researching other books about artist careers and artist career guides, they always seemed to be taught by somebody who had something to sell. They wanted to sell coaching lessons. They, I mean, or and they weren't full-time artists. Mm-hmm. If they had an art practice at one point, they were now just being motivational speakers or just funding coaching, funding the practice that way. And okay, that's fine. That's one way to fund a practice. But there was nobody that was writing about this. It's like has the kind of adventures and income land that we do month to month to month, year to year. Yeah, I I I think that's one of the things that comes across in the book that's interesting because you know, often you, you you might go to an artist talk and people in the audience will ask some question about, well, how did you manage this or whatever? And the the thing that more often than not is not said is like, oh, I, they come from an incredibly wealthy family and they're living on a trust fund. And so they, of course, have all the freedom of time and the luxury of uh, disposable income. I don't know that exists as much as we tend to conflate it in New York City. But yeah, there's a number of people that have no, you know, visible means of support. But oftentimes a a well-known or a successful artist can suffer at times from amnesia, (laughs) early days amnesia, and they kind of sell the story that they were just gifted and they were just found because they are gifted. And the hidden subtext is, you're not gifted, so you weren't found. And, you know, that's really unfair. But, you know, if you can get a well-known artist to really lay out, and I've interviewed them sometimes with step-by-step, step, what did you do? I interviewed Janine Antoni, and, you know, she came to New York. She worked crummy jobs. She had this whole group of RISD graduates with her, and they put stuff together themselves. 
And yes, she did get anointed at some point, but she's really, she really worked hard at it. That is actually one of your sort of pieces of advice is to have that community, to yeah. build a community. Right. And when nobody is giving you shows, make your own and invite people to them. Yeah. Right? I don't even talk about galleries until the fifth chapter because there's so much you need to do before that. I think the biggest the biggest thing I'd like people to get from the book is the sort of idea that it's not instantaneous, there's no secret passwords, it's a lot of <laughs> hard work, and that being an artist is you know, an incredibly wonderful profession if you're making the work that you really want to make. And then you really do, at some point, have to be a little dispassionate, step aside from that work that you're so emotionally engaged in, and you should be, and say, okay, so where does this belong? Who should I be contacting? Or how do I get, who do I need to talk to to get started? And that's a business decision. That's not a heart decision as much. So really understanding that there's the left brain and the right brain side of having a career and that, you know, like it or not, as an artist, you're running a small business. Now, you may never make all of your income from that small business, but it could be some measure of your income or, or not. You may have other reasons for doing it. You know, it's a whole wonderful realm of social practice that has opened up. So there's lots of reasons to be an artist, and not many of them are really monetary. Yeah, I thought maybe it'd be interesting to hear you talk about how do you see people and the way they define what they think is going to their life as a successful artist means and how that impacts whether or not they continue doing it or give it up or <laughs> Well, you know, I you know, I've been teaching professional practices since 1992, kind of like when nobody else was doing it, no one thought about it. You know, the New York Times did say the program I was at the time doing at the Bronx Museum of the Arts called Artists in the Marketplace. Mm-hmm. They did say I was teaching careerism. I don't know whatever that is because all I was teaching artists was how to just, you know, protect themselves and survive. But anyway. So pejorative for sure, yeah. <laughs> that, absolutely. Yeah. It's, well, you know, when we call somebody a careerist. Yeah, not good. Right. But not that, not a nice term. That does but, come from that place where uh, people believed, oh, artists are just supposed to be these pure creators and money's not supposed to be involved and you're just supposed to right, uh, uh, not think about business because business is crass and it's anti-art and all yeah, those things. Yeah, ask Tiepolo about that. <laughs> ask Rubens, ask Rembrandt, who both made and lost a fortune. I'm Commissions, sorry. Yes. Yeah. You know, there's a lot. And artists used to be taught by artists, you know, in the studio, sweeping the floor and moving their way up. So you saw how an artist conducted a studio practice and how they wined and dined or wooed collectors or how what was in their contracts, you know, how many bottles of wine each of the or beer, I guess that's what they were using those days that each, you know, assistant received as part of <laughs> uh, part of the deal. So it's kind of interesting and it, that whole idea has really arisen much more recently in terms of, you know, I would say in the, you know, the 18th, 19th 19th. century, and, you know, and carried over. 
But where was I? I trying well, to. Th- I was answering <laughs> one question. Yeah, I was, sorry, I, got lost I jumped into in. Something. No, I that's fine. I was asking about like the definition of success. Success oh, as an artist. Yes, let's and, go back to that because and, I think that's really important. And um, in the book, I've spoken to a lot of artists, and I've certainly watched over the years so many artists' careers rise or fall or glide by all different ways that they've created a life for themselves. And when it really just boils down to is success is having the time, the space, and the wherewithal to make the work that you want to make. That's the first stage of happiness as an artist, whether somebody else is funding it or whether you're funding it or whether you're even working a full-time job to make that happen. You make that, you know, you're making the work you want to make. Then after that, the next stage of success is having a audience for the work. So, but the first start, the first three, you have to find a way to the wherewithal to make the work. And it's got to be what keeps you up at night, what drives you, that passion that made you choose this career over all the other careers out there that would make you far more, much more money at a much younger age. Yeah. Well, speaking of which, so how, how did this find you? How did you wind <laughs> up deciding, you know, first of all, I think it's interesting, and maybe we can get to this a little later, that uh, you got an MFA back when most people weren't getting an MFA, right? And really? So, I guess I, I didn't yeah. ever thought about and it. MFAs really, I think, are more more 90s and into 2000s. That was like, it, the, at least the explosion of the it MFA. It certainly wasn't um, required for a lot of things, right? Um, well, that, As I mean, much as it is now. It wasn't... I mean, right now, the MFA, unfortunately, is seen as the finishing degree, and mm-hmm. I disagree with that. But I went, I thought I was going to be teaching. Right out of undergraduate school, I was lucky enough to kind of be a good interview and in the right place at the right time and start teaching at a junior college outside of Philadelphia, and I taught for a couple of years, but, you know, I could, that was going to be a dead end. Mm-hmm. And, you know, after five years of being out of school, I just felt like I needed to go back. I tend to not counsel people to go directly for an MFA from a BFA, that really you really need to go out and see if you know how to make art. Yeah, (laughs) something in your portfolio that wasn't an assignment or something. Right, yeah, or do you have the motivation to make art while you're trying to, you know, support a life? And any case, so I went back and, yes, yeah, so I got my MFA in 1978. And, you know, I had two choices. I, I was courted for several full-time teaching jobs, but none of them were in New York. And that was, and I did my, my graduate work at Syracuse University. And I wanted to, I wanted to be in New York City ever since I was a small child. That's where I felt I needed to be. I was born in the wrong location. I should have been born in New York. Where's that? I was born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Okay, which is lovely now. It's a great, and it's a very nice art city. Yes. They have great funding for artists. I'm very proud of Pittsburgh, frankly. But I, um, you know, I didn't take any of those jobs, and I went to New York, and it was 1978, and I was lucky that I could get a... In those days, there was no place to show your work, but there was a lot of available cheap space. So I, you know, one day of looking in this place called Tribeca that nobody knew where really it was, <laughs> with a five-day-old village voice. Mm, wow. I, you know, mm. I signed a lease. 
Mm-hmm. And I lived there for 29 years. Wow. Oh, amazing. Yeah. So, you know, unfortunately now these days there's a lot of opportunity to show your work in New York, but it's harder and harder to find space. No to place make to it. live. Or it's work. completely yeah. reversed. And that's why people are moving to Philly or Pittsburgh or well, New and, Jersey. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's where Michael there, is. There's <laughs> a lots of good places. To, yes. And you know what? In 1978, you know, if you wanted somebody to see your work, they actually had to be physically there. Mm. You know, their reproduction was pretty lousy. If you wanted to see another artist's work in person, you needed to actually go there. And so New York did provide that opportunity. These days, you can make your art anywhere, and you just have to get it out there, and the Internet is such an amazing resource. Well, I didn't have that. Right. So... After stumbling through a lot of crazy bad jobs and doing some commuting for teaching, I started a nonprofit gallery in 1981 called the Rotunda Gallery. And um, it was through a grant from New York State Arts Council. It was to support a gallery in Brooklyn that um, I didn't get the grant. Pratt Institute had gotten the grant, but then they, they turned it over to a nonprofit called the Fund for the Borough of Brooklyn, and they needed somebody to start this gallery to curate, direct, grow it, ex- you know, make exhibitions. And so I got that job, which mm-hmm. was, and it had to be only Brooklyn affiliated artists because in 1981, if um, you had a studio in Brooklyn, you might as well have had a studio in Kansas City. Having anybody actually take the train across the river was like non-existent. Which People, is so funny to hear I now. know, it's so <laughs> weird. It's so weird. But it was a tremendous opportunity to start something and to really have like on-the-job training, running a gallery, writing grants, talking to people about funding the arts who didn't know they wanted to fund the arts hundreds of studio visits. I met my husband on a studio visit. Ah. <laughs> he came to your studio? Or? No, oh. I came to his. Okay. And, uh, you know, that was like, the rest is history. It was really um, very fortuitous. That was my only perk that first year, really. Him. And he's remained a perk. That's right. <laughs> but, you know, after nine years of running the gallery and along the way getting married and having a kid and kind of like, you know, holding on to this painting practice, running the gallery, doing it on a part-time basis. I was pretty exhausted. And I was pregnant with my second kid. And I just said, I just can't, I can't keep doing this. This is like, um." so it was like kind of a a real, um, that moment, crossroads moment where you're like, okay, I either, and I was well known at that time as an arts administrator, but I had been a secret artist. I really couldn't promote myself when, I had all this money to raise for the gallery. And I said, okay, so it's either become a full-time arts administrator and the the art was kind of going to be something I was going to take up sometime later on. Mm. Or when I had this epiphany that, wait, look what I learned running this gallery. I mean, about the art world, about the art business, about managing. And I said, and, you know, I had a private dealer uptown who was very quietly selling some paintings I said, you know what? If I quit, maybe I could make a living at this. And I did. And the rest is history. I just, it was very scary. I spent the first year having to learn how to meditate. <laughs> just kind of calm, stop getting panic attacks. Mm. You know, I managed to planning and setting goals. And frankly, 
understanding that most artists only look for one art dealer, and very few artists, maybe except if you're with Gagosian or Zwerner, do they actually make enough sales for you to actually support a life? Hmm. And I decided, eh, I think I'm going to like look outside of New York. And this is 1989 during a big recession. So the only time in the in history of New York City where you walked into a New York gallery and they said, hi, how you doing? Because <laughs> they had no business. And everybody I knew were was struggling to get into the five spaces that mm. we might show them. I said, you suckers, you take those five spaces. <laughs> I'm looking at the rest of the United States. There's got to be an audience for me, not just here, but elsewhere. And I'm going to find a network of people who will all write me checks <laughs> because they found collectors. And I'm going to open up my mailbox and checks are going to rain down <laughs> over my head and I will be buried in them. So some visualization techniques. I love it. You know, ask for what you want, man. You know, <laughs> no one's going to give you more than that. So you might as well ask for, you know, a lot. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. what I did. And I didn't tell anybody about my plan because no one would have believed me. Mm. But I just oh. quietly went looking You make a plan, you come up with something audacious, it changes the way you think, it changes little things that you do every day. You ask different questions of the people you already know, because you're looking for maybe a different type of information, because you have this plan. You also hear, we are bombarded with interesting information all the time, and it's like a great antenna on top of your head, and you take in information differently thinking about how this might be useful to you. Hmm. And that's what I did. Hmm. So you've been teaching professional practice for a while now. Yeah. And uh, so you've seen, you, you already talked about it, uh, even um, the, the art markets move and what's affordable and how artists can set themselves up. Has that changed the kind of advice you've given? Have you seen a, a market change in, in the things you tell students getting started in terms of You know, it's funny. Successful? It's still the same. I mean, yes. It is radically different, but it is still this. It still boils down to the book is the book was was published in two thousand and nine, recession. Oh yeah, <laughs> which is kind of interesting. I wrote it in two thousand and seven and eight before it came out, and you know I've been thinking, oh, should I need to do a revised version? I mean, outside of maybe expanding sections about social media which probably isn't even worthwhile because by the time the book was published, there'd be something new in social media. The advice is still the same. It still comes back to you. It still comes back to the artist, establishing some goals, making the best work they can. It still comes back to the fact that you've got to, you've got to think about an audience, you know, who's that audience. You're the first audience. You make the work for yourself first, but then you say, well, who else might also take pleasure or be interested? It's still thinking of new ways that art is being seen, it's being purchased, or it's being disseminated. That's always changing. Hmm, yeah. But I, and that makes sense because when you're talking about motivating people, just because you know, the nuts and bolts, the technical details of things change, the motivation doesn't necessarily change, it right? It still comes back to the person. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I have to say, like, one of the most annoying questions I get asked, I do a lot of lecturing um, when I'm out on the road, 
is there's always someone who raises their hand and says, how do I get a gallery? <laughs> Wrong question, right? <laughs> well, I go, well, how did you get a partner? How did you get a husband? There's, you know, the way, the way we find, you know, p- the way we date these days, the way we find potential partners has completely been changed by social media and by Tinder or by, you know, mm-hmm. how you connect with people. Whereas, you know, arranged marriages used to be the way we did it. And so it's a different, it is a different world. And it does behoove you as an artist at any stage of your career to really think about, to learn something about the world that you wish to inhabit as an artist. I'm always shocked at how little artists understand or want to, or are not curious about the art market or about what would be a gallerist's point of view in terms of putting together their space or thinking about the curator's point of view or the magazine or the blogs. All of those people have points of view and, and ways they want to work with you. And if you have some understanding of that, then you can be better at working with them. You have a better chance of connecting with them rather than stumbling into some space and saying, will you look at my portfolio? <laughs> it's like, oh, boy. <laughs> do, um, do you get different questions or do you even have um, somewhat different advice for, for uh, you know, emerging, what they call emerging young artists and mid-career artists, uh, emerging mid-career artists? Uh, is that still all the same in terms of motivational and the things you need to do? And- well, I mean, of course, an emerging artist is like one of the things, one of these sections of the book, I go, is like, are you ready? <laughs> like readiness skills? Are you really ready to put your work out there? So what are those steps beforehand? Have you put together a body of work? Or do you just have one successful piece that everyone loved in your BFA show, but you actually don't have anything else. I mean, do you have a collection? Does it hold together? Are you connecting with your peers? I mean, the fact is, it's kind of exciting that when you're an emerging artist, it's probably the only time in your life that you have fewer responsibilities in terms of, you know, family or other types of response, you have better chance to be out and about. Who do we see at the openings? They tend to be younger people that are out there looking at things. And oh, tell me about it. <laughs> <laughs> but that's okay. I mean, you know, when, you know, when I had well, two Michael, kids. <laughs> Michael is running a gallery for uh, Mercer County Community College right oh, now. Yes. So he's having all the, the gallery. It just launched uh, about a year ago now, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. no, I started in January. Uh, you know, but, you know, between running the gallery, uh, doing the podcast, teaching full-time, having two young children, uh, it is very difficult to get yourself out there. And I have to really push myself hard to get yeah, out there. Yeah, it's got to be a good friend. Yeah. Friend's <laughs> show that takes you out right. there. Right. I know. I mean, I'm the if You know, when I had two small children, I wasn't around at openings. I, it was more important for me what I was doing at home. Yeah, so life does get in the way. I think that's a thing that it's hard to imagine. So while you're young and free and not doing all those other things, yes, get yourself out there. Really start establishing that community of people. I have friends with whom we have been doing sharing studio visits back and forth and have, have a community for as long as I've been married, for 35 years. You know, like the kind of history of my work that they carry into my studio mm-hmm. when they come see my work and vice versa. And then always developing some new networks. 
So that's for the emerging artists. Get yourself out there, make your own party, make your own show, make your own open studio. You've just got to let people start seeing what you're doing. And then certainly for a mid-career artist, well, yeah, then we're in that burdened time where we have so many other, so other responsibilities. So again, holding on to that network as best you can, although it's harder, you know, I just talk to a friend of mine and say, oh, yes, we've got to get together and we put our books together, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's like, the calendars. <laughs> oh, it's two months before right. we can act. It's nothing, nothing is spontaneous, no. right? I wish we could have more spontaneous stuff, but right. that's hard. <laughs> but also, making, trying to, as much as you can, connect with people, you, somebody you don't know. Like regularly inviting people or doing a studio visit for somebody else or coming back and forth between the people you don't know so well and continuing to try to develop that. It's hard. It's harder for mid-career. And plus, mid-career people have a lot of, for any mid-career artist, bad things have happened. Oh, I was just going to say cynicism. They've, bad things yes. have happened. They have, um, they've made some terrible mistakes which is okay. It's a great way to learn about, to learn not, what not to do is to screw it up once. <laughs> so getting past a lot of that, I have to fight with myself over that, you know, and not to just accept things as they are and to pull in and bury myself and say, well, I'm just going to make my work. I'm not going to like, I'm going to shut out that world. That's when things start dying. A question I had is, and maybe you've already answered this, but you could reiterate is, what do you think the number one thing that you find through all your, for all your meetings with all these people is, what's the number one thing that artists aren't doing that they should be? Like, is there one thing that you can say over and over again, this is what they're not doing that they really should be? No, I don't have a one thing. But I would say that artists need to pay more attention to money to funding their practice, however that is. I, I make my Columbia students do a semester of, uh, not a semester, uh, God, nobody would do that. Uh, <laughs> I make them do a, a month of financial tracking. Right. How much does it cost you? How much is your life costing you? Artists tend to be underfunded. We don't look, you know, as soon as we have just enough work, enough money, we stop trying to get that little extra money, that little extra cushion of money. So the biggest heartbreak for me is that when my book was published in 2009, and because of that title of my book, which, you know, my publisher forced on me, the subtext was making making a living yeah. doing what you... Oh, oh, making yeah. a living the doing what... The artist guide, right. how to make a living doing what you love. Right. So wait, wait, which part was forced on you? The, se the second line? Yeah, it was. <laughs> I just really... How to make a living, everyone thought that it, this was the secret to, you know, making a lot of money from right. art. Gotcha. And, to support yourself 100%. Right. And, and in 2009, there were a lot of people who had kind of gotten themselves in a sweet spot where they were just able to get by, and then the market crashed. And they didn't have other sources of income, and they didn't have a cushion, because they never went looking for more. They never took care of themselves in terms of the any self-employed person really needs to have at least six months and actually preferably a year's worth of, of money that is, you know, that you can get access to because it's going to take you that long to like build a new bridge and they didn't have it. 
And it was it was rough. And some of them who had had kind of like a, a bit of a career up until then all start, started looking for teaching jobs or they started, you know. So I think a lot of times artists don't really look dispassionately and say, this is what my life costs. This is, you know, what part of my life that I'd like to have funded by my art. This is how I'm funding these other parts of my life. So multiple income streams, perfectly great. Nobody just exists on only one source of income from sales. Well-known artists, the minute they had some extra money, what did they buy? They buy real estate. Hmm. They have investments. They have other way, other sources of money that start making them look more successful in a sense if their sales drop off. You know, a lot of artists that, you know, made it, did well in the 70s and the 80s, they bought their buildings. They, you know, yes. the landlords for other people. This is smart, you know. Alex Katz bought buildings in Chelsea. That was a smart move because he, he had some extra money to do it with. So, so they tend to be underfunded. And because artists are underfunded and they don't know how much their work costs to make, they never make enough money to really support themselves well. And because we don't know how much it costs to make our work, we don't ask enough money for it. Hmm. Or when we're doing a project and we're putting together a budget, we don't put together a budget that really demonstrates what that project's going to cost. And that's a bit, generally, that's a very big number that scares the heck out of you. And if it doesn't, if the bottom line isn't scaring you, you haven't thought of everything. Hmm. And because of that, we don't go after enough funding, enough grants. We don't slow down a project a little bit so that we can spend more time fundraising for that really important project that we want to do. And the rest of the art world thinks they can get our art for free, <laughs> especially the nonprofits for whom an artist will pour their heart and soul into a project room at the nonprofit and be given some sort of token. Yeah, a stipend, a stipend uh, maybe a $500. residence. $500. And right, I keep right. telling my students, you just right. whip out that budget right. and you say, thank you for this opportunity. I'm really thrilled to be there. Let me show you how much this is going to cost me to, and the subtext is, make you look good. Because mm -hmm. I ran a nonprofit. My new grants were based on my the exhibitions and the projects I'd already done. Mm -hmm. I used them to get more money. But no one, and no nonprofit, no matter how altruistic they are and how wonderful they are, it's so hard to raise money for anything and that you're not going to, the artist will end up being gypped because you have salaries to pay and you have rent to pay. You have all those other things in you. Certainly, I mean, I, I, mean, I certainly underfunded artists for projects when I was running the gallery. Well, I would think that you, part of the storyline that you were telling there that really shows how the great the challenge was is that you also had a husband who was an artist, right? Yeah. So, and the two of you going at it. And I think sometimes I, I'll even hear people jokingly, but maybe not say, well, whatever you do, like, don't marry another artist, <laughs> you know, like, you know, can't you find an investment banker to marry or something? You know, why, why yeah. marry another artist? You know, I found my soulmate. What am I going to do? You know, and, and he was an artist and he had to figure out how to fund his portion of family expenses and his portion of his practice. He had to go through the same things as I did. And he did it in a very different way than I did. So, you know, it's 
being an artist doesn't absolve you from being a responsible parent, responsible person, and responsible for your life. So in some ways, um, in our household, we get a lot of empathy in terms of our practice and what we need to do to make that work. And then, you know, there's things that you can't get along, away with. And you mm -hmm. say, this is, you know, this is part of, I'm a practicing artist too, so we're, we have to figure this out together. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and he's been just amazing or else I wouldn't be still married to him. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> Who's your husband? What does he His do? name is David Headley, and he's also a painter. Oh, Okay. <laughs> and you have you said one kid or two? two? We two have kids. two children, okay. and they both ha are in creative fields, uh -huh. but not visual art. No, my children had no romantic <laughs> notions of the life of an artist. Uh -huh. But um, yeah, I have one's a scientist, and the other is a, a composer. But he he's able to um, fund himself on you know sound engineering. Nice, very nice. Yeah, excellent. <laughs> well, I imagine you have just gone through a process recently where you had to do one of these crazy budgets because I know other friends who have done it, which is doing one of these MTA projects, right? Oh, where I mean, I, I can't say that the MTA is a crazy budget, frankly. It was, it I was mean, the crazy budget I did was when I sat down and said, oh, oh, I think I really need to write this book. This was like in 2006. Gee, it sounds like, you know, ancient history. <laughs> 11 years. <laughs> <laughs> but I, you know, my, my own painting practice had kind of stalled and was stale, and I didn't have much enthusiasm, which was kind of horrible feeling. And I, my students have been telling me for years, you need to write a book, Jackie. No one kind of explained, you know, the tough love, you know, like I don't let them get away with a lot of stuff that other people will. And I said, no, no, no books. I'm not writing a book. Um, and then I said, gee, maybe I better write a book. <laughs> and I sat down and I did a budget. And I said, okay, so what's it going to cost me to write this book? Because I knew it would impact my practice. And my practice is pretty much, my painting practice has been pretty much 80 to 85% of my income for, I don't know, 28 years. That's great. So this was a big, this is going to be a big impact. I knew that I would still have sales. I would have people out there selling, but I wasn't probably going to be making much new work. And I sat down, and that's the budget that I did that was scary, because I said, okay, and what do I need to write this book? Well, I wanted an editor. I wanted somebody I could share my writing with. You know, I had to, like, learn how to write a book really fast. <laughs> and I knew I didn't know how to do that. I had a lot of handouts, but I needed, I wanted it to be something other than a book of worksheets. I wanted to capture my voice. I wanted people to feel like as they were reading it, they heard me speaking to them as, like, one reassuring artist, yes, I've been there, this is what I learned, this is how I learned it, you can learn this too. So I really wanted it to be a mentoring book. And then, you know, I wanted art in the book, and I wanted to pay the artists for their art in the book, and I don't know, you start adding this stuff up, and mm -hmm. I need an assistant to... I, you know, I ended up with a budget of $75,000, and like, whoa, it's like, <laughs> I didn't want to invest $75,000. I didn't have it to invest because I still had to run my life during this period of time. So I actually slowed down the book. I spent the first year putting together um, a proposal. I sought funding. I sought fiscal sponsorship from a nonprofit, which was New York Foundation for the Arts. I had to convince them to sponsor me because uh, I knew that I needed to raise money. I knew that 
There's no grants out there for self-help artist books, let me tell you. <laughs> what? Nothing. Shocking. I looked hard, high and low. I looked at writer's grants, and there's no grants there for self-help books, really. A grant for writing books on how to get a grant. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't exist. So, you know, I had to start looking to foundations that had, you know, as part, were interested in artists being bad, you know, getting more successful at what they do. That and definitely fits in with NIFA's general. It I is. Mean, in general, yes, I they think, were yeah. they were fabulous, and I was really thrilled to be um, to have fiscal sponsorship, and so that a, a foundation that couldn't fund me individually could fund the project through NIFA because that was a nonprofit, and then I just could draw down the money as it as necessary. So the whole idea of like slowing down a project, you know, to make it better, more mm -hmm. successful. So I raised $50,000 in grants. I raised another couple hundred dollars in individual contributions, which was kind of cute. And um, <laughs> when I found a publisher, and that's another story, that was, nobody wanted to publish a book like that. But again, I didn't take no for an answer. I just took no as, oh, that's an interesting piece of information. So how, what, how do I change my tact? Or who is the audience for this? Then I... I got a $25,000 advance from my publisher. Wow. So, I mean, I actually raised all that money. Now, believe me, when I came up with that budget, I had no idea how I was going to do it, hmm. or even if I could raise that much money. But I knew I could raise something, and any something would make it go much further than if I just sat down and started writing. And does, does raising money also then help you raise money? You know, like, can you say... You take oh, yeah. that first grant, you say, I got this, I just Absolutely. need this, right? It, well, what I say to my students, they say, then you have partners because they've invested in you. And so they're invested in your success. And so, yeah, they all helped me after the book came out. They were, they were important to that too. I'm happy to say that I got to read early chapters because when I was in grad school, I took Jackie's professional practice class here at Columbia. And uh, you were very much active writing the book at that point. That was in 2007. And uh, yeah, I got early chapters and I sent you a couple of like typos I found. And <laughs> well, I did learn that you were an incredible editor. And I was always grateful because I have to say that, you know, I didn't exactly grow up with very good grammar, and I actually managed to get through an undergraduate degree and a graduate degree without ever once writing a research paper. Hmm. Those days are over for people, and that's good, but, you know, <laughs> I had to learn a little bit about writing the very hard way as a grown-up. Hmm. Hmm. And I was excited when the book came out because I, you know, I had some notes and things, uh, but uh, it was nice. And I've, I've gone back through the book several times or gone to chapters when I needed to do right. something. And it's, it's, it's one of those books where you could, you can read straight through it, but I think it's like those books where they say, you know, oh, stop now and, you know, do all of this before yeah. you move on. So there's also that, or it's a great reference thing where you're like, wait a minute, I need to update my artist statement. I need to do this, or I'm applying for this thing, or what's what did she say about uh, you know loan forms and all that? Right, and it's yeah. there as a reference. Right? Thank you, thank you. Yeah. Well, the idea is, and then I, I like the fact is you can also throw it. Ah yes, yeah. there you go. <laughs> you get frustrated. You throw it across throw the room. Yeah. It's a nice, room. hefty book. Yeah, uh, still a, so still available. Yeah. Yes. Oh yes, yep. absolutely. 
And it's um, in, I, I don't know what printing it's in now anymore. Right. I've, I keep losing track. And and it says that you know on the on the book you, you teach for Columbia, which I do. We I are, teach we one class. It's not like I'm you know a professor at Columbia. Mm-hmm. I teach one class in the fall. Right. That's not required. And um, I love my students that show up. That's great. But, and it also says you, you, you teach at the Creative Capital Foundation? You know, actually, I've just recently stepped away from Creative Capital. But yes, for, I don't know, longer than I can think about, um, maybe 15 years, where I've been, I have been part of the professional development team at Creative Capital. And that's been an incredible opportunity. Creative Capital is an amazing um, foundation that provides you know, like real support and professional development support for artists in their in their projects and I've learned an awful lot not just from teaching at Creative Capital but from my colleagues and from the art the kind of artists I've been able to work with at the Creative Capital Foundation and the fact that they've traveled me all over the country mm-hmm. you know s- speaking to artists so that and that was a great that was really eye opening uh, it's great for me cuz what you see when you go everywhere, and I think I've been to almost every state um, talking to artists, is that art is, what's the word? It's irrepressible. It boils up everywhere, and there's good art happening and people doing it, artists doing it under some of the most you know difficult situations, but you can't help it. Hmm. You've got to make art. And so if I, if what I have written about in any way helps an artist and makes their life a little bit easier. I feel like I've, you know, fulfilled my mission. Nice. You mentioned the internet earlier and uh, having all these resources that you wouldn't have otherwise. Now, when I was doing uh, some research, I found another book written by a Jackie Battenfield in 1978. Yeah. Uh, and it's, uh, it's about... the graphic sex novel? No, no. Know. It's called, like, I think, ICAT or E-cat. something? E-cat. E-cat. <clears throat> book on right. dying, uh, tie-dying yarns, right? So, yeah, it was like, it was an interest of mine for a while that I was dyeing patterns into groups of to yarn that then get woven and you'll see it on some textiles these beautiful little mm-hmm. stripey effects there's a lot of clothing around right now that prints ecot looking like images mm-hmm. and yeah i was curious about it and so i learned about it and i just wrote this sort of little it's a very skinny book and it's really <laughs> and it's been out of print for you know <laughs> I know, 35 years. But, um, but yeah, thanks this, to the internet, I was able to find yes, it. Yes, it was. There is another before. little Jackie Battenfield book out there, but that bears no relationship to what's to the current Jackie to Battenfield. To the big hefty artist guide that I did. But it was it was fun. And it was, um, you know, and I had a friend who really encouraged me. She said, Oh, I think people need to know about this and mm-hmm. let's find you a publisher. And, you know, and it just so happened there was a little bit of an e cot craze at the moment. Uh, so, you know, mm, the book went out and I wrote it while I was in grad school. Nice. <laughs> well, as, as long as we're uh, talking about the past, uh, yeah. you grew up in Pittsburgh. Yeah. What did your folks do? Oh, my father worked for the government for the Federal Housing Administration. And my mother was a secretary in, you know, an elementary school. So her hours were the same as her kids. Nice. So, I mean, I would say that both of my parents had a certain amount of talent in terms of, you know, drawing talent. 
my father would occasionally take a drawing class, but I think that was more because he liked the nude models than anything else. <laughs> kind of the guy he was. <laughs> Pre-internet, um, right? <laughs> yeah, and I grew up in the suburbs, and they didn't really approve of me ever going into the city. And I remember when I, you know, in Pittsburgh, you have the Carnegie Museum of Art, which is kind of an incredible. They had their, they used to do their annuals, which were really like the Whitney Biennial, but they would international. And so they'd bring in the best of art from all over the world on this regular basis. So, and they, out of that, they created quite an amazing contemporary collection. So I remember I used to um, lie to my parents say, Hey, I'm taking the car. I'm going to go down to the mall. And, uh, and I would drive like a demon into <laughs> Pittsburgh where they were sure I was going to be sold into white slavery or something, <laughs> park the car, run through the museum. But then I saw this incredible work, I, you know, and I always looked at these paintings and I said, Oh my God, how did they get there? How did they get to that place in those paintings? And then I would run back to the car and drive home as fast as I could and hope nobody looked at the how many miles I'd driven and right. <laughs> oh, what did you get at the mall? I said, eh, I just I just right. looked. So while your friends were off running, uh, running around, going out drinking and doing other things, you were running off to a museum. <laughs> I did. I really, um, it, you know. But uh, your biggest fear was coming home with a little metal tag still attached <laughs> to your shirt. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we even had those in those okay. days. I don't remember how they kept track of us at the museum. That's funny. What, was there ever any question then about your career choices? Well, I mean, I, I you know, I got an undergraduate. I mean, I think I questioned my career choice. <laughs> I, I did get an undergraduate degree in art education, mm, safety, the right, safety degree. Right. But then I did student teach in a high school my last semester and realized I, I never wanted to have anything to do with art supplies and human beings under the age of 18 ever again. So <laughs> I graduated like saying, I'm not going to go for an art teaching job. But that art education degree did get me a job, you know, at a little tiny junior college outside of Philadelphia. So I have to say it did come in handy mm -hmm. and they were over 18. So. <laughs> but uh, so now if you're not at Creative Capital and unless you're happened to be a second year MFA student at Columbia, uh, is there a way of people taking classes with you or are you, it's by the book? It really is by the book. And mm. I do a little bit of lecturing and talks, but I do love working at Columbia because I get to give homework. I get to spend 15 weeks with a, a small group of students, and mm. I'd much rather get to know them better. I think what I'm less interested in doing these days is going into a room and motivating people for an 90 minutes and then walking away. And they're just like faces to me. I do feel like I really did write it all down. Honestly, guys, it's <laughs> all there. And I don't want to do as much of that anymore. I still do it occasionally. I'll, I'll do something. I'm going to do something in January for a nonprofit in, in Brooklyn. They wanted me to do a workshop. And I said, eh, I don't want to do a workshop, but I'll do an Ask Jackie session. So, <laughs> you know, you just... Give me, you know, I'll sit there for 90 minutes and just ask me what you want, like you guys, you know, exactly. ask me what you want to know and you'll get my opinionated idea. <laughs> I also do some, a little bit of mentoring for Wave Hill Sculpture Garden. Mm. They have a sunroom project of emerging artists and um, I work a little bit with those artists and that's nice because I get to 
I, I met one at a wedding over the <laughs> summer, and uh, he said he was at Wave Hill. And I was like, "Oh, did you have a class with Jackie Battenfield?" He's like, "Of course, I love Jackie." You know, so, <laughs> so there is a community of uh, people. Yeah. Who so have- for me, that's community, and I love. You know, I, I'm mid-career like a lot of people. So give me access to some of the younger artists, and mm-hmm. and and let me build my community there too. Is really important to me. Well, you uh, you have a great speaking voice. Have you considered an audible version of the book? I have a very long commute. <laughs> you know, I would love to have an audible version of the book, but I don't think my diction is quite up to... I mean, really, that's a big deal, sure. being able to, you know... You get very self-conscious when you know you, you're doing word for right. word, yeah, page by page. Right, yeah. so I have a feeling that... I would have to ha- take some diction le- lessons. <laughs> there, there I go, lessons. Right. I'd have to, I'd have to, you know, learn how to speak a little bit more crisply right. <laughs> for it to work as the book. But you, if you know any but any actors or actresses yes. out there, that, there's the call people. Yeah, who yeah. want who 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 want to right. who who want to read a 374 <laughs> 345 page book or something? Come on in. Right. <laughs> Send your emails in. Come no. on, Sigourney Weaver. Let's get us. <laughs> Let's do this. <laughs> well, Jackie, thank you so much for coming out. What our listeners don't know is it's a weekend and it's the rain, which means all the subways are messed up and yes. uh, people are cranky. And uh, It's a nor'easter, they say. Yes. Is it? Oh. I know. Tonight, tomorrow, yeah. flood watches everywhere. Oh, dear. Yep. Yeah, but, you know, rain, art goes beyond rain. That's always. right. <laughs> thank you for inviting That's me. That's a good place yeah. to end. Yes, yeah. thank you. Bye, everyone. Bye.